Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161D and 213. Is freedom wanted? From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 325, November the 2nd, 1994. In our first hour, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and I will discuss the subject, Is Freedom Wanted? Do people want to be free? We are told regularly that the goal of peoples all over the world is freedom, that they want to be delivered from whatever bondage they are under, and that freedom is basic to the human psyche. On religious grounds, I do not believe that is true. Man is a fallen creature. He is a slave to sin. And our Lord made it clear that only if the Son of Man sets you free are you free indeed. Of course, the Pharisees were very upset with that remark because they said they were not slaves, but our Lord made it clear they were. Now, is freedom desired by most people? I think the answer is emphatically no. They want security rather than freedom. And this is why one political order after another, while it may have a brief season of freedom, and that in itself is very rare in all of history, the United States in its earlier years was the most notable example. They very quickly sell out freedom for security. Now, I want to take a little while to go into this because one of the things that very early illustrated to me in a powerful way this dislike of freedom was the life of Catherine the Great of Russia. I read two or three biographies of her when I was a student. Since then, I've read at least her memoirs, and very recently, a book uh, newly published entitled Great Catherine by Carolee Erickson, published quite recently in uh, 1994. It is a good book, although it still doesn't come to grips with the issue because, of course, its main purpose is biographical. I'd like to take a few minutes before we begin discussing the subject to go into why very early in my life as a student I saw the issue as critical and coming to focus in the life of Catherine the Great. She was born of the ruling family of a small German principality. She was an intelligent, 
a thoughtful and a very perceptive girl. And she was quite young when she was chosen to be the bride of Peter, the heir apparent of Russia. And so she went there, knowing nothing of what was ahead of her, a devout Lutheran girl who was to marry the future Tsar. She got there, and Elizabeth was empress and ruling all of Russia, not very well. And she soon found that Peter was retarded. It became apparent after their marriage that he was also impotent and had no interest in consummating the marriage nor any ability. I go into this because Catherine went through a rough school. At the same time, Everyone viewed her with disfavor and irritation, even anger and hatred, because she was not producing an heir to the throne. And since she was the wife of the future Tsar, she was to produce an heir however she could. So she did with someone who was allowed to get as close as possible and court her and so on. Well, subsequently, Peter, when uh, he became Tsar and Catherine the Tsarina, went from bad to worse and there was no hope for Russia because he was actually more sympathetic to Russia's enemies than to Russia. So he was first imprisoned and then he was executed, and she became the sole ruler of all the Russias. Now Catherine had a background of very extensive reading. She was very familiar and a devoted follower of the French philosophes the thinkers of France who were formulating a humanistic and liberal concept of government. And she felt that this was ideal. She was going to take Russia and bring it up to the modern age by instituting all these reforms, bringing self-government to play, allowing the people to make decisions. The secret police were a long-time establishment of the uh, Russian monarchy. She abolished them. But she quickly found that people did not want freedom. They did not want self-government. They wanted simply to criticize, to subvert, and to conspire to overthrow. 
so she had to bring back the secret police. The tragedy of Catherine's life after that was that she saw very clearly that freedom was not desirable to the people. Certainly not the Russian people, and she increasingly doubted whether people anywhere really wanted freedom. And we would have to say that apart from a strong Christian faith, people do not want freedom. They want security, which is to say slavery. So the life of Catherine the Great to me is a classic uh, example of what happens when someone assumes that freedom is a natural desire of all people. It is not. They want security, even if that security means a great many problems and hardships or chains in effect, real or uh, intellectual chains. I think the problem that uh, Catherine's life poses for us is a very, very important one for us to consider because we face a people that is in revolt against freedom. We are in an intellectual revolution against our American heritage, which represented freedom in favor of security. When I was a child, only a handful of people ever paid income tax. Property taxes were virtually nil. One's contact with the federal government was nil, just voting every two and four years. The state government was insignificant. Sacramento was a village, and every so often, I've forgotten now whether it was every other year or a couple of weeks a year, the legislators went there and quickly left because they did not do much. And it was a quiet, sleepy little city. All that has changed. And it has changed because the people have demanded it. They prefer security and not freedom. Douglas, would you like to comment on the subject? Well, I think we have to compare the <clears throat> the people that came to the North American continent versus the uh, people that we have in the population now, and they're really two different mindsets. Uh, the people that uh, formulated this country originally, most of them were fleeing oppressive governments for one reason or another, either, either looking for economic freedom uh, or religious freedom and uh, so that the bulk of the population were truly 
looking for individual freedom and for the least government. But uh, the majority of people, it seems, that are immigrating to this country now are coming from socialist countries where the socialist experiment has failed and cannot provide them with even meager subsistence. And uh, they look over the fence and see that uh, we have it pretty good here, and they want some of it. So the mindset has changed completely 180 degrees among the bulk of the population, and that's really the, the uh, root of the problem. Uh, so many generations have passed now that uh, the entire population has forgotten what individual freedom was all about. Nobody has ever experienced it in their lifetime, and uh, they wouldn't know what to do with it if they had it. And they're scared of it because it's, it's an unknown. The people who came here and experienced personal freedom for uh, the first time in their lives realized what a cherished treasure that it was, and they strove valiantly to institutionalize it in the formulation of the uh, American government. And uh, giving birth to the government was uh, took considerable pain and considerable time. Uh, they tried to avoid the possibility of falling back into the pit of slavery again. And uh, we look at the documents that these men wrote and analyze their thinking and read their letters and their papers and how much agonizing they went through trying to avoid the mistakes that other cultures and governments had made in the past. And uh, the people today no longer read those papers, can no longer understand them, and it's as if we are now looking back at the remnants of a lost civilization that's disappeared with, mm -hmm. without a trace but a few uh, documents <clears throat> that have been enshrined that nobody understands or appreciates any longer. Well, the whole idea, one of the, the reason people are afraid of freedom is because they don't want responsibility that comes with freedom. And... Um, why today, if something bad happens to you, chances are you can sue someone and get something. Because people have an idea that there should be no accidents, there should be no harmful consequences. Uh, if a plane crashes, somebody's going to pay for it. It doesn't matter whether it was a wind shear or a hailstorm, somebody's going to have to pay and pay dearly. And they don't want freedom. They want security, the whole idea of a safety net, something I should be able to fall back on. I should never have to suffer any consequences from being free. Well, this is a new form of theft. Uh, I mean, it really boils down to uh, getting something for nothing. And, uh, you know, this is the basis of Marxism. Mm -hmm. uh, take it from somebody who's got it. And uh, it's permeated our entire society. 
If you question any group of people and ask them point blank, what do you prefer, freedom or slavery? There's no question. They will say freedom. But if you ask those same people in a series of questions whether they want Social Security, health care, uh, anti-smoking laws, uh, a safety net in one area after another, as Mark mentioned, or they believe they have a right to their job and their rights are violated if they're fired. The number of people who are suing when they are fired is growing. And when they sue, they very often win. Well, the government has told them that it's okay. Yes. And they've given them a long list of, of uh, tests to apply to each different situation. If you tell people that it is all right to steal television sets, they will steal them. And today the agencies of state are in the business of creating a new morality. So they are ready to tell people that this and that, which has always been regarded as morally wrong, is now, by some... Uh, manipulation of the government, legitimate and even morally right. Well, I think a lot of this is, has to be laid at the doorstep of the legal profession. I, I don't want to do any uh, bashing necessarily of the legal profession because there are a lot of good attorneys of of unimpeachable integrity, but there's an awful lot of them out there who are scratching for a living any way they can, and the idea of justice uh, is totally foreign to them. Uh, they don't even consider that that is their uh, function. Uh, they don't consider that equity, uh, what is in the best interests of both parties, uh, even figures into the equation. Uh, they have almost become, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have actually become co-conspirators to steal. Uh, and the legal profession has got to reform itself because it affects the politics of this country because uh, the vast majority, 99.9% of the people who write the laws in this country are attorneys and uh, the vast majority of the people who run for public office in, uh, in all branches of the government are attorneys. And uh, they're going to have to take a serious look at this because it's corrupting the entire country from top to bottom. I would say the courts, the judges, are the major problem in uh, this sphere. I've, I've often thought that uh, uh, you know, in California we have... Uh, a voter pamphlet that comes out before each election so the candidates are allowed to, uh, especially local candidates, are allowed to make a statement um, of uh, why they think they're, they're qualified. I've always thought that all judges should be required to make a statement. Maybe we'd know something about them because how often do you ever hear any type of a campaign statement at all from a judge? 
what he stands for, what his record as a judge is. You can't find out. I've tried recently finding out about the judges that are up for election, and I've called all around, and there isn't a speck of information available on them. Well, that's an interesting point, because when I was young, there would be two, three, four people running for a judgeship. Mm -hmm. That has disappeared. In some counties, you dare not be a candidate unless uh, you've been chosen to succeed a judge. Even then, in some uh, instances, the judge does not resign but runs for re-election and then shortly after will say that I have to resign because of poor health and another man is appointed in his place. It has been a long time in the state of California that since there were two men running for a judgeship. And it has been with difficulty in recent years that we have been able to uh, push through a measure uh, allowing us when a judge's name appears on the ballot, and on the current ballot there are a number of judges up, and you can now vote yes or no. You don't have a choice between two men, but you can vote no. Mm -hmm. And I uniformly vote no for all the judges because they're the only name on the ballot. Well, uh, to illustrate the... Uh, degree of corruption uh, on the news this evening in the state of Alabama they told about a judge on the state supreme court of Alabama who was canvassing uh, leading members of the legal profession particularly those that are involved in uh, injury lawsuits where they make big big money uh, who even practice in his court who currently have cases pending in his court, and he's canvassing these guys for campaign contributions to, uh, to run for re-election. And it's legal in the state of Alabama. And he may have no one running against him. No. So when it, when it reaches that degree of open corruption, uh, open defiance, uh, then the legal profession had better take a, a look at why they suffer such low esteem in the public eye. Uh, they get very indignant uh, when people tell jokes, attorney jokes, and so forth. But uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. The, uh, the anger and, uh, and uh, uh, against the legal profession is very deep-rooted very deep-seated. There are major companies that won't even do business in certain states anymore because of lopsided decisions against uh, insurance corporations and so forth. They're, they're getting milked like cash cows uh, by the courts giving away these uh, huge settlements and these companies just pull out of the state rather than continue to do business there. That's true and sadly though it is against the legal profession as a whole rather than the judges the judges are the problem. And uh, I 
knew of one case not too long ago in one county here in California where this one judge was an alcoholic and uh, everybody would avoid having him as judge because he resented having to be tied down to a courtroom. And so they would uh, have the case transferred to the other judge. And the other judge was a man who uh, felt it was sad that he had to decide against somebody. He said, I'm going to make at least 50% of the people unhappy and sometimes all of them unhappy. And that's all he could think about, how he was going to make people unhappy, not was he going to do justice. So we've had uh, incompetent people in the courtrooms, political hacks. Well, the, the root of uh, this is that the uh, American Bar Association has a stranglehold on who can even become a judge. If you don't have the the approval of the Bar Association in your state, you don't get nominated, period. And the American Bar Association has become so politicized, uh, rather than just dealing with legal issues, uh, they have become politicized to the extent that they're uh, making public policy statements and uh, forming uh, resolutions on social issues. In other words, prejudging mm -hmm. which a judge is not supposed to do. And then here's the same bar association as the gatekeepers for who can become a judge. So it's just like... Uh, picking a jury with jury consultants. They're picking uh, judicial appointments. They're screening judicial appointments based on their attitude towards social issues. And this is prejudging cases before they're even heard. And this is a violation of the canon of ethics, and yet it goes on. Yes, our Supreme Court should be made of the top legal minds in the United States. But by and large, they're political hacks. And I believe uh, most good lawyers know more law than the Supreme Court justices. I think we have a Supreme Court and, in some instances, state Supreme Courts, made up of an inferior man, political hacks. Well, they become social engineers. Uh, Any time a court deviates from the written law and uh, starts uh, trying to compensate one group against another, whether they say that, well, for 10 years we're going to allow uh, uh, quotas in favor of some minority group to the detriment of another group, then they've lost their way, they're off the beam, because when they get away from equity, uh, they've lost credibility. And uh, right now, the Supreme Court, I believe, has lost major credibility with the decisions that they've come down with over the past 30 years, because they have abandoned equity. 
and uh, nobody trusts them anymore. Everybody uh, can pretty well predetermine what their decisions are going to be, and uh, that that shouldn't be the case. There, there needs to be an organization of some kind that sets up some um, some guidelines how how we could go about reforming our judicial system. Whether it's going to be by, in the case of the federal courts, by amendment in the state courts by uh, by legislation. There's something on the ballot now. We have a very inept and dishonest system of judicial ethics, and they're trying to change it to something equally or even more <laughs> corrupt, controlled by politicians. Right now, if a judge is accused of um, uh, an offense, other judges try the case, and it's entirely confidential, it is entirely secret, and they cannot release any of the proceedings without that accused judge's uh, permission, and obviously that's extremely rare. So very few judges accused of crimes are ever brought to any kind of um, uh, accountability for it. Well, I got to arrest a judge for drunk driving one time. I mean, he was sloshed, <coughs> ran his car off the road, and and uh, uh, he threatened us, uh, my partner and I, uh, threatened us with uh, retribution and uh, then uh, tried to pay us off. And uh, then at the last, when that realized that wasn't going to work, he became like a whimpering child, uh, you know, about to get a, a licking. And... Uh, you know, he was practically groveling on his hands and knees, and we almost we had to drag him into the station to book him. It was it was disgusting. What happened? Was he? Well, I, you know, we, when you're a police officer, you don't get to uh, you don't get to follow up on that because you know there's so many cases go by. But uh, the other officer made the appearance, and uh, I don't know what happened to him. He was probably released on his own recognizance after he sobered up, and that was probably the end of it. But uh, it was a uh, illuminating experience. There's an interesting uh, sidelight on this whole issue of freedom as against slavery. We have quite a mythology that has grown up, both pro and con, about uh, slavery in the South. And just as some have idealized it in the South, others in the North have demonized it. But there is an interesting aspect of Southern slavery that... Uh, is not often considered. Work on a plantation was not year-round. There were seasons when there was less work than others, and during the late fall, winter, uh, and into the earlier part of spring, there was no work virtually on a plantation. So. What the owners would do would be to uh, lease the slaves to contractors. And the slaves would go into the towns and cities and build. 
Some of them became excellent uh, architects and designers, and some of the fine examples of Southern architect uh, architecture are really a product of slave architects and slave builders. Now, I mention this because the slaves were paid. They were able to accumulate a fair amount of money through this kind of activity. And some would save up to buy their freedom and the freedom of their family. The significant fact is that most did not. They found that having the cash enabled them to have luxuries or goods that they normally would not have, and they chose to spend it on such things. Uh, all the same, there were some slaves that were free in every state virtually. In Virginia, at the time of the war in 1860, 10% of the blacks were free and, in many instances, were themselves slave owners. What you have to say in terms of this was that the others who were workers, who earned money, were not willing to pay the price of freedom, which meant that they were not willing to forego present pleasure for future benefits. And I think that's important because that's the mentality, the slave mentality of most of the country today. They want uh, quick gratification. They are head over heels in debt for luxury goods. And as a result, we have an entire population in slavery through debt, which is a form of slavery. Well, I think this, this uh, you're at the core of the, the uh, problem because uh, politicians, I believe, we've got enough smart men up there. I mean, there's some dummies to be sure, uh, but there's enough smart men up there who could very easily right uh, the wrongs as far as running the government correctly, but they're not stupid. They're aware of this fact that people uh, have this dependency, and uh, it's like a uh, uh, it's it's like a narcotic. It's, yes. It, you know, once people are captured by this and enslaved by this, they can't let it go. And all of this anger, the so-called voter anger in the country that uh, the media says is abroad in the land right now, uh, is uh, misdirected. Uh, to be sure, the politicians are uh, feeding at the trough with both hands, uh, the majority of them, with the salaries and the perks and so forth, and that enrages people who are not getting those salaries and those perks themselves and the, the paid vacations and the million-dollar retirements and the, the uh, multi-million-dollar retirements and uh, all the rest of it. 
but the anger is misdirected because uh, the politicians know how to solve the problem, but they're not going to solve the problem until the people themselves are willing to throw off the, the slavery or the enslavement uh, of the, uh, the things that they've asked government to do for them. They're just, people are just going to have to recognize that we are the problem. Yes. The politicians, in effect, are doing our bidding. And, and uh, people are unwilling, unable to recognize the fact that we are the problem. We ask government to do more for us than, uh, than it should. And uh, there's always somebody out there that wants more every day. It ratchets up another notch, another yeah. notch, year after year after year, until finally the federal government is gargantuan and out of control. Good, a good example of that is how many years have the Democrats um, made uh, mileage out of saying, well, if the Republicans are in office, they're going to reduce Social Security. And it's always worked. It's always been very effective. And the Republicans have been so afraid of it. Years ago, they stopped criticizing Social Security. Well, I would love to see somebody call their bluff just one time, and it will scare them to death. Absolutely, they will be terrified if somebody calls their bluff. Because if that's all they've got, then they don't have much. The lust for security is like a drug. And just as addicts get hooked and keep demanding more and more uh, in the way of drugs to satisfy their habit, so people who have a lust for security can never get enough of it. It's the sin of gluttony. You know, yes. once people become a slave to anything, I don't care whether it's eating too much ice cream or mm. whatever it is, when you can't walk away from it, then it owns you. Well, this is what destroyed Rome. What had been a virile pagan republic steadily became a socialist state with a lust for security with uh, bread and circuses for the mobs, with increasing demands for more. And it was uh, so bad that when Valerian came along with so much already given to everybody, he had to go into the future with his promises. He said that no child of any welfare recipient would have to go through the trauma of applying for welfare. It would be his right on birth. Well, that was 275 A.D. With that, he ran out of promises. And uh, as a result, all he could do then <laughs> was to look vainly for something. And he was killed in the next year so <laughs> yeah. there wasn't much more they could ask of him well uh, you know I keep uh, it, it's been a puzzle to me for many years why people can't see the obvious and you know I keep asking myself year after year how long is it going to take before people recognize you know where the where the real problem is 
And, you know, we've seen over the past few years this anger and this frustration gradually build and gradually build and the, the, uh, uh, the advent of Perot and this focusing of this discontent with the two major parties. And uh, you got to ask yourself, is the discontent because people don't think they're getting enough from either the Republicans or the Democrats so that they're willing to go to a, uh, an independent third party? Or do they truly want reform uh, of the federal government? Now, downsizing. I mean, companies are doing it. Major corporations, when business is down, they downsize. They let people go. They get their, their house in order, their economic house in order, so that they can survive. Our government has no intention. Mm -hmm. They feel that as long as they can print money, they can survive. But there's, there's an end to that game that's been proven over and over and over through history, and yet nobody wants to, to recognize it. One of the interesting things about Perot's popularity was people really didn't know what he stood for. He was, he was not the establishment. He was an alternative to it, but he didn't really say what he wanted to do or what he believed. But they were, they were grasping at something as an alternative but I think they liked the fact that he wasn't very specific. Well, he's he, he's got people buffaloed now because he came out uh, supporting uh, Governor Ann Richardson, Texas, who's a socialist, and now he's going to go up to Washington and campaign in favor of the guy who's running against the Speaker of the House, Foley. Uh, I don't know whether he's doing this for effect, just to throw people off guard, or whether he has some kind of a plan, but uh, whatever the plan is, it's uh, inconsistency seems to be the underlying theme. Of course, inconsistency is built in to the population's attitude. Uh, there's a great deal of resentment across country towards other people's entitlements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not theirs. Right. What they're getting, they deserve. But what other people are getting, they have no right to. Yeah. When when the system collapses, okay, let's say it's, it's an economic uh, a collapse that 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 causes our system and, of entitlements and 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 such in our political system to basically stop functioning. Short of a change in the attitudes of the people based on a faith, there's really not much for them to change to. Are we going to end up like Russia with a system that doesn't work, but we don't know what we're going to institute in its place, and it's just a period, go through a long period of stagnation? I think that's a real possibility, a long period of stagnation. Uh, people... Things, uh, events tend to, to move pretty quick once they go over the knee of the curve, but there's a, it takes a long time to get there. And in order to develop a consensus for change within a country, it takes a long time because it's a, it's a one-at-a-time situation. You know, people have to change their mind one at a time until you get enough people together to, to push events uh, over the knee of the curve of change. It may be different here. After all, the Russian-Soviet regime did not collapse 
we propped it up. When it supposedly changed and Yeltsin took over, we propped it up again. The KGB is running the country. So they have not had a legitimate collapse. But who's going to prop us up? Yeah, I'm just going to ask that question. <laughs> I don't see anybody standing in line. I think they'll rejoice when they see us fall because mm -hmm. we have seen in the past few decades a growing arrogance on the part of Washington, D.C. towards the whole world. Well, there's a lot of animosity out there, a lot of anger out there. I was in a small lumber town in the Pacific Northwest over this past weekend, a uh, small town of 800 people. The only industry they had there was a lumber mill. Uh, the Endangered Species Act, uh, Spotted Owl, uh, Trojan horse of the... the uh, federal government, which uh, is in the process of using these uh, fuzzy-wuzzy uh, issues to nationalize all resources in this country. Uh, Sixty families were forced to move out of the town virtually overnight in order to survive because they were living from paycheck to paycheck and has decimated the town. Practically every piece of commercial property in town is up for sale at uh, distressed prices. Um, there's, uh, the town is virtually deserted. There's very little activity going on. The people that are left there uh, are uh, very concerned for their future. But I read an article, and the, the people don't know why they're being singled out, and they don't know what the end game is. And I've talked to some of them, and I said, to them, I uh, told a couple of them, business, local business people, I said, I noticed an article in Investors Business Daily last week that said that there is a consortium of lumber mills in the Pacific Northwest that have leased a million acres in Siberian Russia, and they're going to start logging over there and slabbing these logs to a, to a, uh, a, a, a regulation size and shipping this, uh, these planks over here and milling the lumber here in this country so that they won't lose the investment that they have in the mills. But I said these mills will be totally automated. There'll probably be three people in the mill per shift. And uh, the labor, the cutting of the logs, the slabbing and so forth, this will be done by Russian labor. So I said the, you know, the, the giant sucking sound of your jobs going overseas uh, I said, this is what the end game is. And uh, I said that, you know, your, uh, your anger and frustration uh, is, uh, uh, you, you've got a place to focus it now. Uh, it's at Washington, D.C., because they, uh, in effect, have engineered this situation mm -hmm. uh, to ship your jobs overseas. They can now regulate commerce worldwide and regulate uh, resources in this country uh, any way they want to and fine-tune the economy any way they want to. And uh, none of them had ever heard of this. You know, the mill didn't tell them why they were shutting down. They just let the media tell a story for them that it was because of the Endangered Species Act and because of the spotted owl. But that's not the end game. 
while cutting those into those forests in Siberia will be deadly for the old believers. They fled from the Marxists into the forests and had carefully concealed spots. Occasionally, um, planes would go out and search for them over that vast tract of forest, trying to spot them. We have the technology to find them 100%. Unless they go underground, we've got infrared detection devices that can pick up a body six feet deep in the ground, so it's going to be pretty tough for them to escape. Well, you see, they could escape from the Soviets. Now their refuge is ended, and they're no more loved in uh, Yeltsin's Russia than they were in Stalin's and Brezhnev's. Have there been any precedents in history of a people having to assume freedom and responsibility against their will? I could only think of two minor examples uh, in uh, in the Plymouth Colony and Jamestown Colony and their experiments with uh, communal Mm -hmm. living, but that was a very short experience and they could fall upon back upon their own abilities and their own experiences before they came here. Well, the problem now is that the world is virtually one community because of communications and travel, so there's no place left to run. So we're confronted by an entirely different problem. You can't immigrate somewhere where you can start a new country again. It's just... Well, you've never had a real break into freedom apart from Christianity. You've had a number of societies begin with freedom because they were not that organized and lose it in time. But we self-consciously have seen freedom become a motive force in Christian civilization. Now, an interesting uh, book on that subject, which is not intended to be on the subject we're talking about, was Stephen Ozment, O-Z-M-E-N-T, When Fathers Ruled, written just a few years ago and possibly still in print. And it was about Reformation Germany, the aftermath of uh, Luther's work there and then in some areas the work of the Calvinists was that fathers became heads of their households in an unprecedented way and they created a major social revolution. They created new, a new center of governmental powers, the family. And all this was an act of faith. And Osment rightly titles the book when fathers ruled. It's the antithesis of uh, what we have today because the father is the person who feels most useless in the current families of today. Uh, The woman doesn't have much respect for his authority and the children have less. So the problem is a major one in our society and there is not going to be a turnaround apart from Christian faith. 
This is why what uh, Colonel Doner and Monty Hidden and Joseph McAuliffe are doing is so important. They're holding seminars for men with as many as 300 turning out on how to be men, how to rule their households, how to govern. And men are hungry for that because they've been crowded out by our culture, the media, the feminists, the schools have all made them feel as though uh, any time they assert their manhood, they're creating some kind of criminal offense. Well, secular schools, that's been yes. one of their foundation uh, philosophies is to drive that wedge between the generation that they're teaching and the generation that they come from. A, a tremendous area where people are choosing freedom is Christian education and homeschooling. And both are growing rapidly. And nobody thought it would take off. I recall uh, in the early and middle 60s, public school officials were proud that they were so tolerant of Christian schools. Of course, they didn't think they were anything but an exotic fact that was insignificant. They never thought they'd get off the ground. In a few years, they became very hostile. But what it did reveal was that families were taking back education and they were choosing freedom in education as against controls, against slavery. And this, I feel, is one of the most hopeful signs of our time. I think you're going to see more and more of it because uh, both movements are growing. The homeschool movement in particular is making very, very rapid strides. And uh, its powers are uh, startling uh, across country. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the best uh, areas of growth for our work has been among homeschool people because of their eagerness to learn, their eagerness to apply the faith, their eagerness to think about uh, what it means to be a Christian and how to apply it. I believe that the issues we are now putting out to call attention to our work in the sphere of Christian charity We'll meet with a very strong response from uh, these people because it's exactly the kind of thing they represent. Well, I think for people who feel that slavery is inevitable, uh, looking at history in situations where people started out free and over a, a succession of generations have lost their freedom, should examine the fact that since this country has begun to veer away from its Christian foundations, uh, 
they have increasingly lost their personal freedom and it's no coincidence mm -hmm. it's inevitable but with a Christian foundation if you maintain uh, Christianity as the base of a civilization it's inevitable that you'll maintain your freedom and I don't think very many people give that much thought mm -hmm. well our time is almost up is there anything further that any of you would like to add to what has been said thus far well I I think people essentially have to make themselves free they have to be free um, spiritually as you said at the beginning and they have to uh, focus on not being walked into uh, dependence on government, dependence on debt. And I know a lot of people are working towards that end, which means they can't, they can't own a house. They're renting, sometimes under uh, uncomfortable positions uh, and situations, especially with large families. And they're making great sacrifices because they don't want to be a slave to a mortgage, a slave to, to government, and so they're thinking like free men. And if you think like free men and you assume responsibility for yourself, then that's the beginning. And besides, it scares the politicians to death. Yes. When I was a high school student in one of the anthologies that was our text, there was a poem entitled The Slave by James Oppenheim, and I've never seen it in any anthology of recent years. And the gist of it was, Oppenheim said, you can strike the manacles, the chains from off a slave, but you cannot set him free. Only from within can a man be set free from slavery. And that's our problem today. Slavery is an inner fact, an inner reality all around us. And it will take a Christian renewal to bring about a rebirth of freedom. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules dot com